0: Let's watch this video together. So he says I'm equally as comfortable in a Mormon church, as a Catholic church, as a Baptist church. Listen, Billy Graham, you wouldn't be comfortable in this Baptist church. You know, I don't know what Baptist church you're talking about that you'd be comfortable in, but it's not this one, buddy. You'd be very uncomfortable in this church. We'd throw you out of this church. You wouldn't even be allowed to attend services here. Throw you out in the parking lot and go like this. And stay out. So that is Stephen Anderson, uh, and just in case you need a little bit more bigotry in your life, you can subscribe to his YouTube channel. Um, Stephen Anderson is famous for telling people who are and are not welcome within his church community, and apparently Billy Graham happens to be at the top of his list of people who would not be welcome in his church. This is a condensed version of his video to which he says that Billy Graham doesn't even preach the gospel at all. Now, I don't normally pick on other pastors, but Stephen personifies a clear division within the church that's best personified probably by this sign here. You see, for far too many, the church has been a dividing place of whether you are in with us or you are not in with us. This could best be personified by a church called Westboro Baptist Church, whose website is literally godhatesfags.com. Since 1955, Westboro Baptist Church has taken the form of what they call uh, removing the precious from the vile from the mouth of God, which they quote scripture. In 1991, Westboro Baptist Church did what they call began to conduct peaceful demonstrations to demonstrate opposing lifestyles of soul-damning, nation-destroying filth. But then there's the opposite perspective of a Westboro Baptist Church, which could best be personified in the words of Abigail Van Buren, who said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. The metaphorical image of the church is a field hospital that is welcome for healing and restoration for all people. We live in a this and that world. Think about it. Dog or cat person. Facebook or Twitter. iOS or Android. PC or Mac. Coke or Pepsi, State or Carolina, Carolina or Duke, Duke or NC State, Democrat or Republican, patriotic or unpatriotic. We live in a this or that world. But have we ever considered that sometimes we can be both? What if the church is supposed to be a place both for sinners and for saints, and for this we turn in our text to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18 verse 9. Now we are beginning a new 4-week series today entitled Ecclesia, creating a nurturing community of healing and transformation. Ecclesia is the Greek word used in the New Testament for church. It literally means a gathering, a community, a united body. So over the next 4 weeks we'll be wrestling with what is the church? We're exploring what defines the church as both a community of sinners and saints, a community of both giving and receiving, a community of comfort and of challenge, a community that is called to be settled, and a community that's called to be mobile. And for this, we look at Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Whew! You know you're off to a good start when it's prefaced with, to those who are confident in their righteousness and look down upon everyone else. You know this is going to be an awkward story. Just, just hold on there for just a second. It's difficult to know who Jesus is talking to in the circumstances because as we talk about often, context matters. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. Then he starts speaking to his disciples in the same setting. We haven't even changed the setting yet. And Jesus goes into this parable. So is he talking to his disciples? Is he talking to his Pharisees? Is he talking to both? Whomever the group Jesus is talking to, self-righteousness is going to be the topic of this parable. Self-righteousness is very simply believing that you are right and looking down upon other people because you believe they are wrong. Self-righteousness is believing that you are superior to others because of what you believe and because of what you have done with your life. So one thing is for sure, this text is going to be overwhelmingly applicable to our times. We live in such a self-righteous culture. And it's not like it's a dishonorable trait. We live in a culture that almost accepts and anticipates that we will be self-righteous people. Consider the raging uh, battle of politics. I don't care who is in what office. Each side believes they are always right and their opponents are wrong. And they will come down to whatever cost to make sure you know that they are right and this other person is wrong. Elections bring out the self-righteousness in America, the raging issues of budget crisis and gun control and the Affordable Health Care Act, immigration, taxes to provide uh, uh, topical issues that that puff out our chest and show us that our opinion is far superior than anyone else. News coverage is basically the very essence of self-righteousness. Most news channels spend most of their time talking about how their opponents are wrong. And while we claim to simply watch coverage, we soak in the attitude and opinions of the broadcasters. Then we make our self-righteous claims and conversations and on social media. And good Lord, if you post anything on social media, let the boxing gloves come out. Because no matter if it's said on social media, in a sermon, in a blog, in a tweet, in, in, in some sort of video, people are going to have opinions of what you are doing. She gets it. She's like, yeah, I preach, preacher. <laughs> in a world of religion, let self-righteousness reign. The creation of labels like conservative and fundamentalist and liberal and heretic are verbal evidence of self-righteousness. And nowadays, someone, if they write a book or preach a sermon, there are endless others who who have their life centered on how they can respond, how they can rebuttal, how they can condemn the name of another person. And Stephen Anderson is just one of many examples of this. So self-righteousness fits into the context of our world. So let's carry on in the parable in verse 10. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. as as if Jesus wasn't beginning this parable in the most polarizing way by saying for those that look down upon others, Jesus then strikes a chord when he talks about two of the most polarizing figures of his day, a Pharisee and the tax collector what were the Pharisees? We've uh, been a while since we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke where they're the most prevalent. Uh, Pharisees were not priests. They were not rulers of the temple. They were actually more like lay leaders and common leaders. They believed that if you pursued the law to the utmost and if you enforced the law on everyone else, then God would bring God's righteous hand back to Israel. In other words, if I live as perfectly as I can to the law of Moses, and if I enforce that on other people, then God is going to bring God's reign back to Israel. And so the Pharisees were were actually popular in their day because the religiosity of their day. But Jesus constantly is butting heads with the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke, who was the opposite end of the spectrum. There was this person called a tax collector. Without a doubt, a tax collector would have been the most hated person in Jesus' day. Because most tax collectors in Jesus' day were Israelites that were empowered by Rome to take money from Israelites. Nobody likes a money collector. (laughs) Nobody wants to get that letter in the mail of how much they owe this company or that company or this thing or that thing. Imagine if you were empowered by Rome to literally take from people money that was for Rome. And then also because you had the threat of Rome on the tip of your tongue, you could take a little extra for yourselves. And so tax collectors were hated. They were viewed as public enemy number one. But this happens in verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. The arrogance of this Pharisee is palpable. I mean, we can can taste it in the air and it's 2,000 years later, right? Just look at his posture. On one hand, he's standing. He's in the temple in Jesus' parable. The, the, the natural thing for him to do would have been at least to bow his head, to maybe be on a knees. The proper thing to do in Jesus' day would have been to lay prostrate in the temple as he addressed God in a prayer. But no, he's standing. And we just imagine the words that he's praying here. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for all to hear him, including that horrible tax collector that's right there. All of a sudden, Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Just listen to his words. God, I thank you I'm not like this person, like these people, like those robbers, like those evildoers, especially that disgusting tax collector. His confession is a deep, self-righteous, me versus them mentality. And he just he he laps it all up and how wonderful he is. He talks about all the extraordinary things he has done. He practices, he fasts. He says, I fast twice a week in Jesus' day. If you even fasted once, you were considered to be a good Jew. And now he's above and above all this thing. He gives 10% of his money to, to the temple. He is a holy man. He is a a righteous man. So the first thing I want us to learn about this text that we're encountering today is that self-righteousness tries to exclude God. It's simple. This Pharisee bolstered himself to the same status as God. As he talks about all the things that he had done, all the great things that he had done for God, all the religious practices that he engaged, he keeps spouting out of his mouth all the things that he needs and has done as if he does not need God in his life. His posture is a proclamation that says, I don't have to bow prostrate before God. I don't have to bow my head. I don't even have to get down on a knee. I can stand before God because I am on the same level as God. You see, self-righteousness negates God because the self-righteous person believes that salvation is in their hands by what they have done and by what they have not done. And the proof is in the pudding. I played by the rules. I've done all the right things. At least I'm not like this tax collector. Let's play a little game here, okay? I'm going to show you an image, and I want you to tell me what it represents. Are you ready? Okay? We'll go one by one. First one. McDonald's, yeah. Second one? Third one? Okay, fourth one? Prince, yeah, some of y'all are like, oh, we started to fall off there. All right, last one? Blackbeard, Blackbeard, there you go. I've always loved Blackbeard's flag. I just imagine, like, back in the day when Blackbeard, you know, he's there, he's got his tricorn hat on, he's got a sword on his side, he's got his smoky beard, and he says to his group, you know what, I want a new flag. I want something that's just going to strike the the fear into the hearts of all my enemies. So let's have a skeleton uh, that holds a chalice and then holds a spear going into uh, a heart. And I I just imagine Sam the sailor was probably thinking, "Uh, like I can think of a bunch of things, Blackbeard, that strikes hard into the fear of people. Maybe not holding a chalice, but maybe a severed head. I don't know. That just doesn't seem very intimidating at all. Why do we have logos? We have logos because they help us recognize a brand. Whether it's a musical artist or an online retailer or a type of food like McDonald's that sends you straight running for more Charmin. We We have logos because they help us differentiate between what we want and what we don't want. We have logos because they tell us in our minds what is good and bad, what is quality and poorly made, what is expensive and what is cheap. Logos help us label things. You see, that's the thing about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is an attempt to label others and justify oneself. The Pharisee is speaking in the motto of us versus them mentality. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the robbers, those evildoers, those adulterers and tax collectors. Phew, thank you God, I'm not like them. But what is self-righteousness is it leads us to believe that we are in an elevated status religiously and socially and spiritually and mentally above other people. And therefore, a self-righteous person will judge others on not being like them, not being in the same class as them, not being the same type of person as them. Self-righteousness judges others by creating categories of sins. Oh, do we love this in the church. Have you built your statement on this? What about this issue here? What about this sin here and these and these and these? Because we have all the knowledge. We can label people based on our perspective. Based on how we have read and interpreted the Bible. And that is what the Pharisee and all the Pharisees did in general. They were making a stand on their so-called biblical views of the time. Using this language. The Bible says. The law says this. I do this because I'm supposed to based on the scriptures. I recently heard a retelling of this parable Two of them, and I want you to listen to both of these. These are two modern retellings of this parable. The conservative Christian standing by himself was blogging thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, ignoring God's clear command against the homosexuals, not upholding scripture as inerrant and fallible, giving an ear to biological evolution of human origins, decrying God's sovereignty in all matters, challenging the historicity of the Old Testament, and even like these liberal Christians, I thank you I'm not like them. But on the flip side, there was this other retelling. The liberal Christian standing by himself was blogging, thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Bigots for their stances on biblical marriage, supporting fast food chains who are against homosexual rights to marry, hold to scripture as inerrant, infallible in all matters, uh, teach conscious torment and hell for eternity, actually believing in the historicity of Genesis 1 through 3, and even like this conservative Christian here. On November the 18th, 1978, 900 people died in a matter of hours because of their faith. It was an instance of martyrdom, but it was actually an instance of cold and calculated measurements of a man named Jim Jones. If you remember Jim Jones, he had convinced people of his righteous cause, of socialist and progressive ideas in his movement he called the People's Temple. And it was this massive movement with several thousand people. And he actually, because of scrutiny, convinced a thousand people to leave the United States and to travel with him down to uh, Guyana. And after uh, the U.S. uh, congressman, a man named Leo Ryan, visited his encampment after he had heard reports of child abuse and other concerning matters, Jim Jones reached a tipping point in his paranoia. In fact, as uh, Leo Ryan left his encampment, he instructed several of his minions to go and try to kill uh, Congressman Ryan as he arrived at the airport, which they failed to do. And as a result, um, Jim Jones forced or convinced 900 people in his cult to drink a poisonous drink. This is where we get the phrase, drink the special Kool-Aid. Jim Jones joins a long history of people who have done horrific things in the name of their faith or in name of their God. In the name of God, Jews and supposed heretics were tortured and executed during the Inquisition. In the name of God, supposes witches were drowned and hanged and burned in the witch trials. In the name of God, militant extremists flew planes into buildings, detonated roadside bombs. In the name of God, white Christians justified the expulsion and death of Native Americans, slavery, Jim Crow laws, the alt-right movement, and apartheid. In the name of God. You see, the danger of self-righteousness... Danger that can begin to creep up in our heart as we see within this Pharisee is not only do we try to exclude God in our lives because we don't think we need God because of the things that we've done, the things that we believe, the things that we've said. Not only are we judgmental to other others and labeling them, but also it leads us to a place of religious bullying. How many times have we encountered the Pharisees in the Gospels where they are pushing people around emotionally and socially and spiritually in the name of God? How many times do we see the Pharisees condemning Jesus because he broke bread with the so called sinners of his day? In a couple weeks, we'll get in the Gospel of John where they literally drag a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and say, The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Religious bullying is toxic. It's self-righteous. It negates the the call of Jesus to be a people of mercy and grace and hope and love. Instead, bolsters us into a life of discrimination and superiority and judgmentalism and sometimes, yes, violence. Maybe not with our actions, but certainly with our words. (coughs) And the extraordinary words of Burning Manning who wrote the story goes that a public sinner was excommunicated and forbidden entry into the church he took his woes to God and said God they won't let me in because I'm a sinner and God responded what are you complaining about they won't let me in either the parable ends with this in verse 13 but the tax collector stood at a distance and he couldn't even look up to heaven but he beat his breast and said God have mercy on me a sinner I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted you see it's so easy for us to get overwhelmed in this parable by the pharisee by the antagonist of this story but we forget that there's another character within the story it's this tax collector and Jesus' audience would have been appalled. They would have been shocked by the fact that Jesus said that the tax collector's prayer was heard by God. You see, we live in such a world where we think that our categorized sinners, our, our categorized self-righteousness, that that divides us based on whether or not God will hear our prayers. And what Jesus says in this parable is, uh, no. This marginalized, this This self-proclaimed public enemy, number one, his prayer was heard. Versus the self-righteous religious person. Jesus is essentially saying, do you really want to know what God really thinks? It's not self-righteousness. It's not so-called right living according to how you interpret scripture. It's not judging others. It's not attaining false salvation by your own hand. What God desires is humility. And that's what we learned from this tax collector of all people. You see, look at the tax collector versus the, the Pharisee. The Pharisee is literally standing before God, proclaiming this for all to hear. And what is the tax collector doing? He can't even look up to heaven can't even do anything except to have his head down to the ground. Jesus said that he literally is beating his chest. This reminds me of the early monastic movement where priests were so overwhelmed with their sin that they would do things like self-mutilation and hurt themselves because they felt like that might appease the wrath of God. This man is in a complete posture of submission. His words, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not a profound, long theological statement. He doesn't compare himself to other people. He simply recognizes and embraces his own brokenness. <coughs> and he begs God to have mercy on him. And all this guilt and all this shame and all this unworthiness builds up to this boiling point where he just he begs God to have mercy on him. And Jesus said that this man this man was justified. Not in his remorse, not in his guilt, not in confessing a specific sin. He's justified because he recognized his deep need for God's grace and forgiveness. He recognized his deep need for God. And this would have been scandalous in Jesus' day. And if we're honest, this is scandalous in our day. A modern day sinner is justified before God instead of a religious, self-righteous person. It's not the Pharisee, it's the tax collector that embraces God, embraces God's grace and mercy in your life. You see, in our humility, God's grace becomes a reality. Humility makes God's grace a reality. You see, God's grace is this gift of salvation, it's this gift of forgiveness that we have to embrace before it becomes a reality. It's so easy for us to have this concept of God's love. It's so easy for us to have this concept of God's mercy. But until we can come to a place in our life where we embrace it out of our need for healing, our need for transformation, it never becomes a reality to us. As awkward as it sounds, coming before God in humility is like, it's like stripping away everything that we need to hide, our arrogance, our pride, our self-righteousness. And it's like we're standing naked before God. And God's response is to wrap us in the warmest of cloths and blankets. You see, God sees all of us, knows all of us. Every fraudulent act, every every whiff of envy and resentment and self-deception, and God throws it out the window and embraces us with love and mercy. And the hardest thing about this text is we recognize that our lives are messy. The life of the tax collector was so messy. The life of the Pharisee is so messy. Can we see ourselves within the tax collector and the Pharisee? Can we see that that our lives need cleaning up in all different forms? And I'll put myself at the front of that line. We all are broken and need to be made whole by the love of God. And it is not a God who stands over us self-righteously saying, be like this person. You better not do these types of things. It's a God that looks at us and says, I love you. And I embrace you. And I sent my son to the cross that you might experience this as a result of my love for you. God loves us so very much. Can we embrace our messiness? It's been 20 years since Christianity lost one of the greatest saints, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. For decades, this woman um, served the poor in the streets of India. She she fed the hungry, she clothed the naked, she gave shelter, she provided medical care to the sick. And the story has been repeated uh, many times. A reporter watched Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She cleaned the maggot-infested wounds of a man on the streets, only to have the reporter say to her, "I wouldn't do that for a million dollars." And Mother Teresa looked up her and smiled wryly and said, "I wouldn't either." <laughs> This is the same woman who was discovered by another reporter was sitting on a stool cleaning the open wounds of a leprous man. In the words of Pope Francis, I see clearly that the thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. You see, the church is not a place... For sinners or saints. The church is a community for sinners and saints. The church is an active and living community of Jesus. It is therefore a place where all people are welcome, no matter a person's race or nationality, their faith practice, their sin, their marital status, their economic status, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their physical or mental ability, their political stance, their theological perspective, their station of life, their caliber of righteousness or self-righteousness, all are welcome in God's church. It's not our church, it's God's church. And as we encountered the ministry of Jesus, this ministry that constantly broke bread with both the self-righteous religious people and the so-called sinners of the day, we learned that the church is for all people. The world needs compassion and healing, not judgment and damnation. Let's go back to these words from burning Manning in the ragamuffel gospel. He says, if the church remains self-righteously aloof of its failures, irreligious and immoral people, it cannot enter into a justified kingdom. But if it constantly is aware of its guilt and sin, it can live in a joyous awareness of forgiveness. The promise has been given to anyone who humbles himself, they will be exalted. What would it look like for Mosaic to be a community of sinners and saints? What would it look like for us to be a people where the the people of Clayton know that this is a safe community for healing and grace and mercy? What would it take for us to look more like Jesus and less like the Pharisee in the story? Maybe it starts with, as one author put it, churches should aim to take people of every age and ability level and help them to become the most loving version of themselves possible. They would help people face the challenges of life, challenges that can make them bitter, self-absorbed, callous, or hateful with openness, courage, and generosity. They would become people recognized when they're straying from the way of love and help them back on the path. May we be a church of not sinners or saints, but may we be a church of sinners and saints. Let's pray.